Welcome to From What If to What Next. I'm your host, Rob Hopkins. This is the podcast where anything is possible. Rather than debating whether the big ideas of our time are good ideas or not, we allow ourselves to imagine that they've already happened and try to experience how that might be. Kurt Vonnegut in his book Mother Night wrote, We are what we pretend to be, so we must be careful about what we pretend to be. In this podcast, already indispensable in your life, we hope, we take a great care about what we pretend to be. And I must mention at this point that this podcast is only able to exist because of the many wonderful people who've subscribed at patreon.com slash from what if to what next to support it. You get this podcast, some great bonus bits, plus a delicious warm feeling of supporting something good and beautiful and so, so needed, an experience that has been likened by some to being filled with warm honey. Do consider it, it makes such a difference. And so, to today's episode. Today we're talking about economic growth, one of those fundamental concepts that has gone almost completely unquestioned for a long time. In his book, Prosperity Beyond Growth, one of our guests today, Tim Jackson, wrote, every society clings to a myth by which it lives. Ours is the myth of economic growth, adding, questioning growth is deemed to be the act of lunatics, idealists and revolutionaries, but question it we must. And so, on today's podcast, question it, we will. This podcast began during the first lockdown, and this is one being released, hopefully, as we start to move beyond the grasp of COVID-19. These days of COVID have shown us that extraordinary, profound reimagining of many aspects of society are entirely possible. Might this be the time to do away forever with the idea that the only way to measure our progress, cultural, social, spiritual, economic, is purely by how much bigger our economy is than it was last year? It's a weird metric. Imagine if that was how we assessed the growth and evolution of our children. Sure, some growth at the start might be useful, but as they mature, we want to be able to measure their growth and their defining qualities in other ways than just becoming ever more enormous. And what might the world look like if we did replace this idea of growth with something else? Our question, therefore, for today's episode of From What If to What Next is, what if we could live better in a post-growth economy? It's my great honour to be joined by two esteemed guests to explore this with me. Kate Soper is Emerita Professor of Philosophy and a former researcher with the Institute for the Study of European Transformations at London Metropolitan University. She previously worked as a journalist and translator from French and Italian. She has a long association with radical philosophy and has been a regular columnist for the US-based journal Capitalism, Nature, Socialism. She's also been an editorial collective member and writer for the New Left Review. She's the author and the co-author of many books and was lead researcher in the research project on alternative hedonism, the theory and politics of consumption between 2004 and 2006. She's been involved in a number of research projects on climate change and sustainable consumption, most recently as a visiting fellow at Puffendorf Institute, Lund University, Sweden. Took me ages practicing how to say that. Her latest book, Post Growth Living for an Alternative Hedonism, was published in 2020. And Tim Jackson is an ecological economist and writer. Since 2016, he's been the director of the Centre for the Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity at the University of Surrey in the UK, where he is also Professor of Sustainable Development. From 2004 to 2011, he was Economics Commissioner for the UK Sustainable Development Commission, where his work culminated in the publication of Prosperity Without Growth, 
which was subsequently translated into 17 foreign languages. His latest book, Post-Growth, Life After Capitalism, has just been published by Polity Press. He holds degrees in mathematics, philosophy and physics and honorary degrees at the University of Brighton and Université Catholique du Levant in Belgium. And he's a fellow of the Royal Society for the Arts, the Academy of Social Sciences and the Belgian Royal Academy of Science. In 2016, he was awarded the Hillary Laureate for Exceptional International Leadership and Sustainability. And what you might not know about him is that he's also an award-winning dramatist with numerous radio writing credits for the BBC. Welcome both to From What If to What Next. Thanks, Rob. It's great to be here. And it's nice to catch up with Kate again, actually. Kate and I uh, first crossed paths in back when I was in the Sustainable Development Commission. So she she wrote one of the founding pieces for the exploration that led to um, Prosperity Without Grace. It's good to see you, Kate. Yes, it's good to see you too as well. And thanks, Rob, for inviting us and allowing us to have this uh, reunion, if only in virtual reality. Um, yes, Tim, you're quite right. And also, you spoke rather brilliantly at my Alternative Unionism conference, didn't you? I did, yeah. Well, I don't know. I'm not saying I spoke brilliantly, please, <laughs> but I spoke. <laughs> part from what if to what next and part an episode of The Reunion. So we, so we have a way that we love to start this podcast, which is that I'd like to invite you both to make yourselves comfortable and to close your eyes and to imagine that thanks to my time machine that I have here at my side that I built during lockdown, you are travelling forward through time. 2021, 22, 23. And as you move through those years, they actually turned out to be years of really profound and extraordinary change. It's a 2030 that's the result of our having decided collectively, inspired by both of your recent books, to abandon the idea of economic growth in 2022. And now here in 2030, we are a determinedly post-growth society with a refocusing of values and priorities. It's been a remarkable shift in a short period of time. And I wonder if you might explain to us what you see and hear and smell and feel as you walk around in that 2030. Describe it to us. Tim. Oh, I was, I was really hoping you're going to ask Kate first. <laughs> you know what, because actually, I don't know, I don't know the answer to this question. But that's okay, because in 2030, People don't have to know the answer to every question anymore. <laughs> They're allowed to not know. They're allowed to be uncertain. And it's, a, it's the biggest challenge of all for academics who are supposed to be obviously certain about everything, including their pet theories, and to never, ever be wrong about it. But it's fine in 2030, because in 2030, you can be profoundly wrong. And people recognise that being profoundly wrong is actually a part of what it means to learn in society. And so at the risk of being profoundly wrong, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to suggest I'm going to focus here on the difference between a world that's organized around wealth and a world that's organized around health. And I don't mean health in the sense of, of kind of scary hospitals and the pandemic as we've known it over the last period, although that's clearly in the way that I've thought about this post-growth world a little bit. It's, it's more as a kind of sense of, of balance, of being balanced in the world. And in fact, in part, you know, that my vision of, of 2030 and, and the sense of it is that we are 
living in a place which cares about our health. And, and it's a place where, which isn't scary, which isn't the sense of, you know, you go to a hospital to get fixed when things go wrong. It is the, the foundation of your life from beginning to end is around the concept of what it means to be healthy as a human being, as a community, and indeed in, in terms of planetary health as well, so that we've looked after all these things in our post-growth wisdom. And we look after them every day on a daily basis in terms of the way that we live our lives. So we don't get up, throw down a cup of coffee, go to the office, wherever that office may be in lockdown or otherwise, or whether that ever that job is, that manufacturing job or that outside job, wherever you are, we're not just doing that. And we're not just doing it for the sake of having enough money to spend at the end of the day to bat away all the difficult questions that we don't want to ask about tomorrow like to defend ourselves against all the things that we don't know about ourselves and our society rather than the day is an exploration so the day is about initially because what we do in the morning is we wake up it's about waking up it's about what that means for the physical body and what the body needs at that stage and then it's about our social environment it's about the people that we meet and the way that we meet them it's about our engagement with our work, not as a kind of duty that we have to go to and subject ourselves to and find that in the process, we're wearing ourselves out, but actually it's a place that draws our inspiration forwards. It's a place in which it's possible to be carried away because actually work in this post-growth society is a satisfying place to be. We're not hounded by productivity targets. We're not told all the things that we have to do by people who care nothing for our health and our well-being. We are actually engaged in a collective endeavor that improves the quality, not just of our own lives through income, but actually of the world around us. And when we see this world around us, we begin to understand why we've engaged in this task, because it's a place where we have conviviality, we have the ability to flourish as a community, we have opportunities for health that don't exist in a world in which the automobile is the main means of transportation and the continual the score, if you like, to our lives is no longer the constant hum of the automobile, but actually is the sounds and the symphonies that emerge out of nature. And this is a place in which we engage with each other and in nature in a visceral way. And throughout all this, this task, this sense that actually our journey is not about accumulation and it's not about having it's inevitably insecure, but it is always focused around this idea of health as a balance and our, ourselves as a balance and our inspirations as a balance between ourself and other people and of the past and the future and of humanity and community and the natural world. And it smells pretty good, actually, like honey filling you up. <laughs> um, and like birdsong and like damp earth and like cut grass and like forest, but also it smells of, of each other. You know, we use less deodorant, so it's a kind of, in that way, pretty smelly place to be. bit sweatier. bit sweatier, definitely, <laughs> particularly when we're engaged in those tasks that carry us away 
from the inane rush towards obscure absence of thinking and pretense of knowledge is a beautiful place to be. Mm-hmm. I, I, I thoroughly recommend it. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. Beautiful. Kate? Um, I just want to say initially that I think it's very unlikely that we would have arrived democratically at a post-growth society without a radical overhaul of our electoral system, notably the introduction of proportional representation and perhaps most importantly, a cultural revolution in our views about what constitutes prosperity and the good life. And that will have included a wide-ranging programme of public education and also, I think, instituted ongoing media outlets, seminars and citizens' assemblies for debating the form to be taken in a post-growth society, its desirable allocation of resources and labour, its institutions and policy priorities and so on. And so now today in 2030, all citizens have the opportunity to take part in these ongoing political discussions and many of them do so. In the past two, economic and political measures have been taken Tim will have to tell me exactly how, I think, to cancel the debts of the poorer countries and guard them against any negative initial impacts of the post-growth transition in the North and to allow them to restore much more of their own economic self-determination. As for day-to-day life, I think here in the formerly developed, so-called developed societies, such as here in the UK, time expenditure it's not going to it's not divided any longer between work and non-work activities in the way it was in the past in other words no special value is now attached to work over leisure we have what i would call a more ludic rather than work-driven order of existence that's to say one which no longer views time spent playing or even idling as wasted and the specific forms of concentration that children bring to what they do is much more appreciated in this society than before. And indeed, children and the, the child's way of approaching the world has been taken much more seriously. And indeed, they, children are, to some extent, important mentors for their adult community. And leisure activities are now also treated as a form of prosperity along lines that Tim has sort of indicated as well. Much more time will be spent doing games, music making, acting, painting, dancing. That's what we spend our time doing, mainly, these kinds of activities, plus a lot more self-provisioning. I mean, we, we can all have an allotment if we want it, and we provide more things for ourselves without needing to have access to the market to do that. We haven't abolished work because most of us really want to do some work and it's obviously essential to the provision of the means of consumption. But most people are only doing about three to four days of work a week. When you go to work, when you get up in the morning and go to work, you will no longer face a barrage of of machines that are stopping you having access to your transport system because most transport is now free, most public transport. Work itself has also been redesigned to provide some gratification wherever possible through the work process itself. So we now have quite hybrid methods of producing what we need. We're drawing on state-of-the-art technologies in 
a lot of areas such as medicine and energy and transport and maybe we've also explored you know drawing on that in, in a number of other areas such as food provision but that coexists with sustainable and more traditional methods these are not frowned on because they take longer or anything because it doesn't matter if we take longer anymore uh, and they can very often be more fulfilling and people have discovered that doing things slower and with less complex bits of machinery is often more pleasurable education is really changed quite a bit both at school and at higher levels and indeed it's been entirely revamped to reflect the new revaluations of time expenditure so it's no longer geared to industry and commerce but redesigned to prepare people for the enjoyment of free time and so you've got a, a consequence shift towards the teaching of the humanities, especially special concentration on music as well for children. And that's all viewed as an essential asset of, uh, of education. And children from primary school level upwards now spend at least one day a week outside, uh, preferably in a rural area. And they have a lot of opportunities during the school day to um, grow and cook and eat their own produce at school. Air flight has become, in consequence uh, of its environmental problems, increasingly rare and rationed. And we just have special dispensations for emergency and rescue services, humanitarian aid. And the priority for air flight is going to be musicians and dancers and theatre people and the like, and the key flyers of 2020, business people, politicians, academics, I'm afraid, they're going to be highly restricted uh, because they can probably do it without actually having to meet up. So as a consequence, air pollution has more or less disappeared and we have much sweeter smells, much less noise, and much insect and other animal and plant life is now being restored to safer levels. Advertisements have been significantly reduced. We don't have any advertisements really anymore, particularly not in public spaces. And the public space that they used to take up has now been reallocated in our cities for spontaneous imagery with a, an emphasis on children's drawing. And I think people can go up and decorate these particular kind of walls and areas. We've also got a growth in sustainable and alternative hedonist architecture with many cities are now providing um, a sort of very beautiful Italian Renaissance-style colonnades, stone colonnades, for bad weather walking and cycling. We have the beginnings of a quite distinctive avant-garde uh, post-growth art and culture, but I can't say that much about that uh, because it's still in the making. Because <laughs> <laughs> it hasn't emerged yet. Fantastic. Thank you both so much for that. So I was going to start with the conversation with a couple of questions to get everybody on the same page. And I imagine that for some listening to this, the idea of questioning economic growth is still pretty novel. So, Tim, what's wrong with economic growth? Surely growth is a vital prerequisite for progress. Well, it's, it's a little bit like you said at the beginning, Rob, I think in a way growth up to a point is good. And actually the data show that really clearly where growth really matters, where it does a lot of work in terms of prosperity is in 
the poorest countries in the world and, and increasing incomes that allow for basic needs such as nutrition and clean water and decent energy supplies and safe housing. That really makes a huge difference to prosperity in the poorest parts of the world. And then and then it is as you almost as you were indicating after a point, you know, you don't want your kids to grow forever. You want to grow up and um, perhaps to grow in some different ways. And those ways tend not to be well captured by economics. They tend not to be captured by production and consumption. They tend to be captured by actually evolution, by learning, by becoming in human ways rather than in, in doing and in acting and consuming in economic ways. And, and that's in a way what the post-growth vision is trying to capture, it seems to me. It's trying to capture a, an evolution of, of us as people in a more profound way than economics has given us really credit for. It was a very good system at a certain point when we didn't have those things, those basic needs. And we should never forget that there are some people for whom those basic needs are still luxuries. But beyond that point, I think, you know, it is the responsibility of those who have those basic needs actually to think about themselves growing in a vastly different ways of thinking more about quality than quantity, thinking more about the expression of the human spirit than the consumption of the human appetite, and, and thinking about society in the same way as well. Social progress cannot mean more and more for everyone. And we've been sold that dream. And, and it's really a very bad dream, not just because it's destroying the planet, but also because it's destroying us. Mm. And, and those really, for me, are the reasons for, for kind of rethinking this mantra of economic growth. Thank you. So, Kate, if we don't use growth as, as the way to measure progress, what else should we use? Well, uh, uh, I mean, I think we, we should probably use a, a range of measures of, of well-being, a number of which are already available, which would be thinking much more in terms of, the, of, of how far our life had actually provided the goods that people probably still really most value and find most important, namely good health, security, sustainable forms of housing and other intrinsically valued goods like more free time, more more opportunities for rewarding conviviality, less stress. I mean, one of the things that I've emphasised in my alternative hedonist uh, argument is that even if it were possible to have indefinite growth, which of course it's not, for environmental reasons, but even if it were, it wouldn't necessarily, and I think Tim's making the same point, it wouldn't necessarily be um, a good thing for us, that we would actually not necessarily be having a, a more enjoyable way of living. There are many aspects of contemporary consumption, our consumerist consumption, if you like, that has been generated by capitalism that are actually positively negative, I think. Uh, the time scarcity, the stress, the ill health, the commercialization of children, the car congestion, the massive amounts of often very toxic waste and so on. So, you know, the, the things that need emphasizing here, I think, and if we were going to have measurements, but maybe we don't need measurements in quite the same way as we now think we do, but even if we were to have them, I think they would have to be gauging these, these other forms of quality of life issues mm. rather than simple 
economic growth. I mean, economic growth measures even anything that makes money, however disastrous it may be from other points of view. So it's obviously to be jettisoned. Mm. You've used this term alternative hedonism a few times, which I love. I love the idea that hedonism has a role to play in this. And I, I wonder what you mean by that. What does that term alternative hedonism mean to you? Well, it's funny you say like the term because ever since I kind of came up with it, I slightly, uh, I slightly regretted it. <laughs> Probably because, you know, hedonism actually does have very, uh, a whole range of quite precise meanings within the philosophical corpus. So, so I'm constantly being challenged, what do you mean by this? Do you mean this? Kind of, um, and actually, for me, it's very much a general term indicative of the way in which I think the argument on climate change has been too focused in many accounts, I'm accepting too, and has been a huge influence on me. But in many accounts, I think, it's been too focused on the damage we're doing to nature. And that's gone along with very apocalyptic, doom-laden warnings. And not sufficient emphasis has been placed on the downsides of the way we're actually living now and the ways that the climate crisis and the resource crisis more generally, should actually be viewed as an opportunity to move to a, a generally more pleasurable life, one that can provide greater well-being for a greater number. Equality is going to, of course, be an essential aspect of that. I don't think we're going to get there without also introducing in the transitional or as a condition of it a much more egalitarian both national and, in, and international order of system. So, you know, it's a big ask from where we are at the moment. But it's one that I think, you know, what my, my feeling was that it rightly emphasises the disasters of climate change and it's unsustainable, the unsustainable nature of growth has tended to think that we need to, as it were, find technical means to circumvent that damage in order to continue with the consumer culture that we've already developed. Whereas I think that consumer culture is itself one that we need to rethink, including its very ideas of how to prosper. Mm. And I I would recommend not only Kate's book, which explores the idea of alternative hedonism, but I always think the work of David Fleming and Lean Logic and Surviving the Future is beautiful at kind of capturing what an alternative hedonism might look like. So, um, Tim, I earlier mentioned your quote about every culture, every society clings to a myth by which it lives, and ours is a myth of, myth of growth. What does the myth that we need to replace it with look like and sound like? What's the storytelling look like that inspires people that a post-growth world could be more delicious and than a growth-based one, uh, as we've just been talking about? And why does the myth of growth have such a tight hold over us? And those are two very difficult questions to answer in quite a short space of time. They're also completely different in a way, because the why does it have a space Maybe they're not that different. Okay, so where do I want to go with this? I think, you know, in a way, and it sparks a little bit from what Kate was just saying, is that the narratives around denial and capture and being caged and being imprisoned and having no opportunities are not good narratives in terms of allowing us the sense of being able to change things and change things for the better. And they're not even that accurate, because I think one of the things we, we have done 
is we have let go of some of the opportunities to grow in very, very different ways. And, you know, a long time ago, Marx once said that religion is the opium of the masses. And, and in the sense that consumerism became a kind of religion for us, consumerism has become a kind of an opium to society. It's designed almost to put us all to sleep so we don't think too much, we don't question too much, we be good members of a society that keeps the economy going by keeping buying more things. And, and actually, at the same time as doing that, it dampens down something very, very essential in the human spirit. Two, two things which I think are very, very essential in the human spirit. One of them is around care and our care for ourselves, our care for other people, our care for the planet, and the other around our, our creativity, our sense of an exploration, a life as a journey of exploration in a creative sense through all of the qualities of the human spirit, not just those associated with material satisfaction. You know, if I have a, a, a question, not, not a challenge really but a question for Kate's approach and and it is of course comes from the language of, of hedonism it's whether pleasure is, is sufficient to capture what we're offering people here because to me it goes beyond pleasure in some sense it's it's a kind of sense of of fulfillment of the journey as a psychologist called Thomas Zatz once said games worth playing which have been taken from us because of the inherent weight that material consumption imposes on our lives and the need to gain livelihoods to expend on material consumption places on our creativity. If we take that weight away from us, we reach a place where actually maybe sometimes pleasure isn't what we're after. Maybe sometimes real hard graft is what we're after. Maybe sometimes deprivation is what we're after. Maybe sometimes you know actually nothing at all is what we're after actually getting rid of everything maybe that is pleasure under some definitions but actually this sense that beneath everything we have given away the power of the human spirit to find fulfillment seems to be one of the most heinous crimes of capitalism and consumerism and that, and that once we free ourselves into that space actually this is a this isn't this isn't just a, a consolation prize it is the prize it is the ability to be more fully human in a convivial society that thinks of itself as having care for creation on the one hand and creativity for the future on the other and it's unlimited the material aspects of our lives are fundamentally limited. Our time on the planet is fundamentally limited. But this aspect of care and creativity is not subject to those laws of limits. And therefore, to me, it's the place that, that is like a well, a, a foundation, a spring from which we can draw nourishment in, for towards a goal of a better society. And even if that doesn't a better society for me, you know, our dream of 2030 may not be realized. We have to face that, guys. Even if it's not, it is a better society for our children and for their children. This sense, it brings back a sense of purpose into our lives as being not simply about our own pleasure, but actually about the fulfillment of a sense of social progress and the spirit of, of creativity that comes along with that. So, so to me, you know, I, I, I know I've kind of just sounded a little bit manic there, but I, I do think there's a kind of extraordinary excitement that sits beneath 
that has been stupefied in some way by a consumerism in which we are encouraged to participate in ways which dull our senses, dull our creativity, hide our sense of care for other people and impede our progress as social and indeed perhaps even as spiritual beings. Thank you. And I'd, lo I'd, I'd love to hear both of your thoughts as to whether these days that we've lived through of COVID have brought us closer to or further away from that? Do you feel like something has changed that will make us collectively more open to the idea of a post-growth economy or, or further away, Kate? It's a difficult question. I mean, after the first lockdown, I did have a sense that it had provided at least some people, it's very important to emphasise that a whole load of people weren't able to work at home, often the more deprived sectors in society were still very much having to go into work and were not having these somewhat alternative experiences. But for a number, more than ever before probably, people had an opportunity to experience a less stressful and less, um, you know, fast-paced kind of way of existing. And the world felt different. And I do actually think that because they couldn't consume in the same way as before, quite a lot of people did do a certain amount of reflecting on what they really properly needed and valued at that period. And indeed, there was a, a YouGov poll taken towards the end of June, which suggested that only 6% of people wanted to return to the status quo uh, ante, as it were, to go back to the old economic system. And it's quite interesting that uh, some of those polls that kind of polling is still holding up. I mean, however, I do, you know, I think the pressures to return to what Boris Johnson was called the bustle have been very, you know, have been very strong and it's been difficult to resist them. And that as time has gone on and we've had a much longer period of lockdown, people have become, you know, they, they started feeling that they're living in some kind of limbo. And, of course, they're also in large numbers now suffering economically from within the existing system. I know that's not much of an answer. I, I, I think it has probably helped to call, you know, people to think more about economic growth and the growth-driven system. But I think they also feel powerless as well at the moment to be able to escape from it. We need to find ways of creating a, a more political pressure, more of a movement that could bring together what I do think, even before the pandemic, were quite extensive forms of disaffection with our lifestyle. And also, I think people are, are just deeply worried about climate change. They're also worried about their responsibilities to the future their children and grandchildren so that we've got the coming together of anxieties about climate change also i think quite quite a, a massive concerns about the the now gaping inequalities in our world and what those imply for future stability in the world and now i think you know dissatisfaction with quite a lot of what's called the good life because of its negative aspects so these these pressures, I think, and the pandemic didn't do anything to disperse any of those people, are now, yes, causing, I think, a lot a lot more reflection. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. What's, what's your thoughts on that? 
I, one of one of those studies that that uh, Kate was talking about actually was something that I was peripherally involved in, something that the Food Farming and Countryside Commission put together early on in the pandemic, um, asking people uh, what things they would miss afterwards if they went away. And people came up with all kinds of things. You know, 80, 86% of people said there was there was the things about that situation they would like to keep. Now, admittedly, that was early on in the pandemic. Um, we had plenty of time later to get to 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 kind of get really fed up with lockdown with everything that was imposed. In fact, I think, you know, in a way, for all the richness that we found through experimentation, I think there was, I think there was a deeper lesson to me, and and it was a, le- a very uncomfortable one that, that there was a shadow pandemic of of mental illness, mental anxiety, ill health, abuse, and uh, very, very difficult circumstances to live with. And almost anybody, everybody, all of us, I'm sure, knows of people for whom that lockdown experience was, was bordering on terrifying. Because beneath the kind of even those who were lucky enough to find some comfort in the slowing down of things, there was definitely a kind of a, a growing sense of anxiety. You know, it seems to me that it had almost existential qualities. Once you've gone into your third lockdown and you're wondering when this is ever going to end, you begin to think about a world in which it doesn't end. You begin to think about a world in which all of those distractions that you had had such easy access to before are not there anymore. You have to kind of face up to the idea of of temporality and of limits. You have to face up to the, the, the absence of other people. You have to face the losses associated with saying goodbye to people without ever saying goodbye bite to them and these these are deep anxieties they're deep wounds in the human psyche to me that the lesson in that is a very very real one in the sense that this is th- that lockdown mirror if you like into which we looked is reflecting back at us images of the immortal abyss in a way that we feel deeply uncomfortable with and yet and this is, I think, which is where it's kind of paradoxical. At this point, when we're faced with the possibility that there's light at the end of the tunnel, we're also faced with the choice whether to just to rush back into that world of pretty distractions and consumerist glitter and bling, because that's desperately what we need right now, or whether to continue to live with this slightly more uncomfortable message, the uncomfortable message of the lockdown, talking to us about the limits of our own existence and teaching us in some ways that if we deny that in our psyche, if we run away from it into this consumerist world, we're not creating a better society, we're creating a worse one. We're not moving towards our own fulfillment, we're moving towards the opium of the masses. We're not creating more inequality, we're just putting up the boundaries around our own possessions and our own security and neglecting to look at what's going on elsewhere. So that it seems to me, and it's the most fundamental choice that I I want to emphasize, that even though I believe that the the prize from facing that darkness is an unparalleled sense of what it means to prosper as a human being. We can't just go there. We have to spend a little bit longer actually recognizing this fundamental anxiety that the pandemic 
showed us. It was a rich, deep, uncomfortable, agonizing, sometimes tragic lesson, but it's also a very profound one. Mm, thank you. And uh, just before we wrap up, is there anything in relation to our question that's run through our conversation today? What if we could live better in a post-growth world that remains unsaid? Anything that I haven't asked you the right question that you'd like to share? Kate, any last thoughts? I, th I think only really, I just wanted to add a word uh, in response really to some of the points that Tim was making, because I was very glad he brought up this issue of pleasure. And it was one of the reasons why I, I actually you know, slightly regretted my introduction of this concept of having done, having introduced it, I found I all too quickly I had to live with it. Because I, I agree with him that pleasure in the very, in that more narrow sense is not really uh, covering enough of, of what I also would want to, as it were, recommend and exhort people in a way to try to return to, however, however difficult it may be to think our way back into it. It does, I think, include recognition of that difficulty, at least, if not hardship, can also be part of the most important aspects of fulfillment. Um, I mean, one's only got to think of things like education and the way that education produces new forms of alienation, as it were, from which one then learns. Or when one's learning a musical instrument or something, it's a, a very frustrating activity, but it's also one that gives us fulfillment. So I think what I understand by alternative hedonism, this is just a corrective in a way, I want to understand pleasure in that much more broad sense of, yes, a very complex form of fulfillment. I mean, I've partly avoided using the word happiness because I don't think that that gives us enough. And one of the aspects that I've often worried about culturally, as it were, which is indicative perhaps of the point I'm trying to make here, is what happens to culture if we do move into a much more pleasurable type of utopia. I, I kind of worry about losing the notion of tragedy, to be honest. The only other thing that I thought perhaps we might have covered just a little bit more, but it's, it's about the way in which I think we need to make clear that the, the so-called developed societies should no longer be allowed figure as good life models for the other supposedly less developed societies. I mean, that we can, I think we need to have a really dramatic conceptual shift going on here. As we advocate a post-growth economic order, we also need to be revising our whole idea of what it is to progress, what it is to, to prosper in ways that avoid what I call chronocentrism, just thinking in terms of the future is alone the place where we get our ideas. We can easily, I think, indulge ourselves in ways of using very high tech alongside quite old ideas taken from the past. And indeed, I've advocated something called avant-garde nostalgia, precisely with a view to retracking in that kind of way and coming back and, and allowing ourselves uh, ideas from the past to actually figure as part of our our new conception of prosperity. And that would include looking to what we think of less developed societies as 
actually in some ways more sustainable than our own, whose, whose environmental footprint is completely unsustainable. And, and being more humble and modest in our approach to what we think to be their underdevelopment, their lack of progress, their backwardness and so on, you know. Yeah, I mean, maybe just to pick up on that in a way, there was um, one of the other contributions to the Sustainable Development Commission at the time, and Kate made her contribution, was from Zia Sardar, who has a concept called transmodernity, which is, again, is similar to your avant-garde nostalgia, which is a, a lovely term as well, Kate. But it's actually the learning from the past brought into the future in a way that's relevant to where we are now. And, and I think to me, uh, particularly when I was thinking in post-growth, uh, when I was writing it about all of these people in the past who had written ideas that are so relevant, in fact, to what, what we're facing now and the fact that ultimately we already exist and are living and are trying to navigate a broadly a post-growth society, that, that, that actually post-growth is not an end point. It's, it's not a place at which we arrive and then realise, whoa, it's utopia. Actually, in fact, it's it's a journey. It's a it's a way of thinking, and it's a way of thinking that will go on into the future beyond twenty thirty. And and if we are clever about it, we'll will observe the understandings of the past and the wisdom of the ages, and bring those into our lives in a way that we're quite often just trying to exclude at the moment because we're so driven by innovation and expansion. And, and for those reasons alone, it seems to me, post-growth is already a richer place to live, partly because it's opened out all of these possibilities for what it means to flourish and what social progress means. Well, thank you. Thank you both so, so, so much for joining me today. It's been, it's been wonderful to have you here. And thank you uh, to everybody for listening and uh, hopefully for your support of these podcasts. And as always, to the mighty Ben Adicott for theme music and production. See you next time. Mm-hmm.